This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Today on the Let's Go Show, we have Andrew Baum, Emeritus Professor from Oxford University. Andrew, thanks so much for joining the Let's Go Show. Appreciate you taking the time out. That's great. Thanks for asking me. So we're just chatting a little bit pre-show. I uh, I spent the weekend reading your PropTech 3.0 uh, paper, which I found perfectly timed for the market. But why don't you do a great job of kind of outlining in the paper, you know, what you're kind of delineating between PropTech 1.0 and 2.0. Why don't you, have, I, I'm kind of a PropTech history geek, so I enjoyed the paper, but why don't you give a uh, the audience a little bit of background on PropTech 1.0 and kind of what the diff- key differences are. Well, of course, this is this is all a matter of opinion, and uh, you, you do your best to be um, well researched and, and well educated in these areas. But I've been I've been researching and studying real estate since 1970, I think it was, um, which makes me incredibly old. Um, <laughs> but um, I was pretty happy sort of teaching real estate valuation, real estate investment, real estate finance for for years until I ended up at Oxford teaching MBAs and executives. And and I had to start thinking about what it was that MBAs wanted to know from me and what what executives in the classroom wanted to know from me. And they didn't really want real estate finance 101. What they wanted was some sort of idea about what was going to happen in the future. So, you know, what would your career look like in real estate if you're an MBA? Or what would your company look like in the future if you're a real estate executive in the executive classroom? And it sort of hit me really that that I needed to understand a lot more about what the forces were that were driving the future. And this was back in sort of 2015, 2016. And the forces then were clearly technology. That was the sort of the big driver. And so um, with my dean's support, I decided I was going to spend three months intensively researching this market and, and writing a paper pretty fast. So I went to, went to Silicon Valley and I went to New York and Boston and I went to Amsterdam and I, I sort of spent time in London. And I employed a Chinese MBA student to tell me what was going on in China. And in three months, we put together this 100-page white paper and, and it just hit the market at the right time. And ever since then, I've been sort of building a research team to look at these issues and we now have support from 12 companies and we've got a team of six, seven researchers. And um, until a month ago, I was running that team as an executive. And um, that gave me all of the sort of um, all of the collateral that, that I've been using in my class and in my books and so on ever since. And and also in my work with PyLabs as a, as a strategy consultant. So that was it. It was the it was the need of my students to get to know about this stuff. Yeah. And you describe kind of. 1.0 is, uh, I believe it's the lead up to the year 2000 or somewhere around there. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So in the 19, you know, I, I've seen the, these various waves of um, computing come in. So the, the 1970s were, were, were a decade of paper and pen. The 1980s were a decade of, of Excel spreadsheets, um, IBM PCs, and the first flowering, really, of computing, which then led to performance being measured and databases being built and, and you know the early stages of that sort of technology. And then the 90s was the decade of the internet and email. And so you, know, you can track the growth of email traffic from 1995 to 1999. That's when it went exponential. 
And so everything was set up then for the dot-com boom of 1999-2000, which inevitably led to a dot-com bust in 2000-2001. And in that, two, in that sort of wave of 99-2000, a lot of businesses got launched, like... Um, uh, like Actis launching um, their their um, software, their software, you know, their valuation software, CoStar effectively getting together in that sort of period. So you have these survivors of .com 1.0 or PropTech 1.0 from that that late 1990s, uh, led, led to sort of a bit of consolidation then in the early 2000s. So the 2000s was the decade of the global financial crisis, and it wasn't the decade of technology. Uh, palpably, you know, it wasn't obviously a, te a technology decade, but of course it was. So what was going on was the GFC was was deflecting everybody's attention into leverage and financialization. And meanwhile, quietly in the background, from the wreckage of the dot-com bust, Apple was launching the iPhone, um, you know, the App Store in 2008. And you'd got this wave, this second wave then, PropTech two, 2.0 being the, the, the child of the global financial crisis and a loss of faith in traditional processes, coupled with the App Store, creating this beautiful way that people connect with assets like cars and like, like houses and rooms. And, um, and then Airbnb took off from that, you know, using that, that formula. So in, in that report, Chase, I used the term PropTech 3.0, which was intended to be a sort of a playful um, suggestion that maybe blockchain was going to be the next the next wave, and um, I think I was on the shelf about that, and I'm even more on the shelf about it now. So wh whether we're getting anywhere near blockchain or PropTech 3.0, I don't know, but we're clearly passing through a huge PropTech 2.0 aftermath right now. Yeah, and you have a uh, there's one section in the paper where you kind of talk about the limitations of real estate as an asset class, which I found. Um, really intriguing and kind of spot on. But, you know, you mentioned throughout the paper that real estate has obviously been a laggard. I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, but a laggard in terms of technology adoption. And so what are it from an asset class perspective? And you kind of outline the difference between obviously equities and bonds, stocks and bonds. Uh, but what are kind of the, the kind of main key points from an asset perspective that, that make real estate a little bit different? And this is a this is a really fascinating and not not straightforward subject. You know, I think there are two markets in which real estate is traded. So I think it's important that we keep those two markets in mind when I'm answering this question. So the two markets are the space market, the occupier market. You know, which is characterised by demand for space, supply of space, and the price of space, meaning rent or some derivation of rent or price for services. So that's one market that we talk about. Then the, the second market is the capital market, which is characterized by prices, by acquisitions, by demand and supply from capital and, and sellers in the market. And, and it's, it's these two different aspects of real estate as an asset are, I think, in different positions regarding technology and innovation. So if we, if we look at the capital markets first, real estate as a capital asset is is conservative in the way it's dealt with for good reasons and it's it's conservative because it is a form of wealth conservation typically so if you're a person who 
has got wealth in the form of real estate. You don't want disruption or renovation. What you want is preservation of your capital and conservation of something that's worked pretty well for you. Um, and therefore, there's been a lot of um, talk and and some investment in disruption of the capital markets in real estate, which I think have generally been disappointing. And you know, with with apologies to anybody who has made a success out of innovation in the capital markets, it's extremely tough. And I think there have been a lot of disappointments. So you talk about things like crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending. These things all have their place and they've all made a dent, but they've hardly revolutionized the world of real estate. And I suspect they're not going to. Um, we could talk about tokenization, fractionalization, digitalization of real estate assets. Again, you know, these things, there is a place for this, but it's not, it's not absolutely disruptive and it's certainly not likely in my lifetime to completely change the way real estate is traded. So that's my, my personal prejudiced view on the capital markets. My view on the occupier markets, though, is, is very different. And the, the occupier, occupier markets used to be characterized by incredible inefficiency. You know, the, the world could be, you could, you could simplify the world into billions of people and billions of rooms. And you could say that in the history of mankind, people have been trying to get into rooms, whether it was a cave in the Stone Ages or a, you know, a mud hut or, or a sort of a, a thatched cottage or whatever it was. You know, people have been trying to get into rooms for shelter and for all sorts of purposes. And now, now people get into rooms for hotel purposes, for work in offices, retail for shopping, houses to live in, and so on. So if you think about the billions of rooms in the world and the billions of people in the room, before the 1990s, we had very few efficient processes connecting rooms and people. What we had was newspaper advertisements, you know, Craigslist, Dalton's Weekly, Exchange and Mart in the UK. Uh, we had estate agents who you would telephone for advice or even physical offices in the high street that you would walk into to say, I'm looking for some space. Do you have anything in paper form in your filing cabinet? You know, and now this, this has moved, you know, this has moved hugely. So now we're in a world where the app has created this platform that connects occupiers with, with landlords, or if you like, and much better customers with service providers. And this, this change from landlord tenant to to customer service provider is significant. And you look at people like CBRE buying bits of industrious, you know, it's just indicative of moving from a model whereby you see yourself as a property manager collecting rent from a landlord to a service provider operating space. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, the, the technological digital disruption of the Occupy market is deep and ongoing and will change everything so you know that's that's my sort of uh, take on the on the on the asset class i think yeah and i th it's it's funny because it's kind of all intertwined even on both of the sides when you're talking about kind of occupier and the rent side and then obviously the capital market side which you know i i think since the 90s people have been talking about fractionalized ownership and there's a lot of uh uh, sadly, dead dead startups along the way that have kind of taken angles at this. It's not necessarily a a new new idea, but with the you know you mentioned blockchain, and I I think what we're seeing with the likes of Robinhood and kind of the the public equ equities market, 
is this, you know, new age, the individualized trader and them coming together in terms of the long tail having collective power and squeezing some of the institutional money, like what happened with GameStop and yeah, some yeah. of the meme stocks in the last year. Yeah. I'm, I, I know a lot of people, obviously, in kind of the, the institutional capital world for real estate. Uh, and it's been a very, very good game for a very long time, very stable. So I think the only way that these things, uh, I, I think they're keeping a close eye on it. And probably the biggest pressure from the occupier side, at least on the office, uh, kind of in the office segment that's coming along is just that fact that there's so much downward pressure in terms of, you know, length of lease where employers just need to be much more nimble and that's going to start to, it's making that shift to service provider and customer. And, you know, back in the day, if you're running kind of a 10 year life cycle fund and the, the lease was longer than 10 years, you're kind of clipping a coupon and it was a really good business, but uh, there is going to be much, much more emphasis on, you know, customer experience and customer satisfaction. And you're just going to have to be a little bit more nimble. And then obviously that's going to force folks to think about how they underwrite the asset class collectively, right? It's going to need to look more like multi-year hotel or something like that. So I think these, the flywheel is starting to spin a little bit and these things kind of go slowly until they go very, very quickly. Um, so I think in the next five to 10 years, it'll, I'm, I'm not going to wager a guess on uh, when, whether it's built on blockchain or not, I think it probably will be, but until the, you know, the, the every man and woman starts to, to play in kind of real estate ownership in smaller amounts, like what has happened with Robinhood. But I think there are some pretty powerful forces that COVID has accelerated that are at least starting to, I think, loosen the grip on the dynamic of the asset class that it's had on innovation and in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I think I think you make a you make a very good point connecting the occupier market with the capital market, and and you know what you've been saying, what you were saying then really is that you can't insulate the capital market from the changes that are going on in the occupier market, and that's a that's a really good point. I think my challenge would be, you know, who are the right uh, holders or um, who are the right holders of the assets in a world where risk is clearly increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you get shorter lease contracts, then you need more expert operation of the assets. Who are the right owners of these assets? And it's I'm, I'm yet to be persuaded that an individual, an individual buying a small piece of one building is in the right position to judge the risk that they're taking by taking on this asset. Yeah, and it's I would say it's a, and I think that's where obviously regulation, because it's a real asset, as you outline in the paper, compared to uh, some of the other things that people can put their money into. I think, you know, you're talking about owning a fraction of somebody's home or owning a fraction of somebody's workplace that has big impact on jobs. So I think from a regulatory perspective, there's going to be higher hurdles on some of these things, but at least in the U S I don't know much about the UK, but you know, they have done, um, a lot over the last several years to really kind of lower the, uh, lower the barriers to invest in, say, private companies and things in terms of, you know, what a uh, what kind of what kind of net worth and things that uh, you need to have to be able to buy shares of a private company. And I think there's a little bit of this uh, messaging of that's kind of how wealth is created, uh, which obviously we want to make that more accessible to more people. But I do think because it's a real asset that has real implications 
there's going to be a lot of regulatory considerations in in any of these plays that are trying to you know bring very risky what could become riskier and riskier which i think you actually outlined in another chapter um how, how those things collide i think won't won't be it'll be a little messy yeah, I, I just just sort of come back on, on a couple of points on that. I mean, I think the first thing I wanted to say is that is that we've had we've had waves of democratization. You know, we've had you know the hippie movement of the '60s was the first time I noticed this idea that that everything should be available to everybody, and we're going through it again after 2008. You know, this idea about co ownership and co living, and mm-hmm. and you know, I regard it all as a hippie dream that that dies when you get to 30 and you meet somebody <laughs> and you have kids. You know, so um, so I'm I'm sort of fundamentally skeptical about that. The, se- the second thing I wanted to say though is that um, is that I don't have any objection at all to people who are renting their residential accommodation having some financial interest in the housing market. I think you know that makes a lot of sense. So if we're simply pricing people out of apartment buildings in Manhattan because because they're all a million dollars minimum and you haven't got a million dollars, then of course you know people should have the right and the opportunity to invest in that market so that they can get a foothold uh, in in an asset class that might be being priced increasingly out of their out of their scope but then that would take me on to the final point which is that you know nobel prizes have been won uh, pointing out the free gift that is diversification and um, i would much rather uh, that a, a young flat renter in manhattan invested in a diversified residential property fund that maybe gave access to thousands of apartments in new york rather than rather than one building you know just so that they were covered so they could access the, the market they wanted to pick but they're not confined to one building where something could go wrong so i'm uh, you know they're, they're my points really and uh, i hope that that markovitz's nobel prize would not be taken away from him these days <laughs> yeah and I, I mean it's a tough subject because what you're seeing here like you also follow blackstone and blackrock and you know a lot of kind of general generational wealth creation happened from getting a mortgage owning your home and kind of uh you know holding on to that asset for 20 30 40 years paying off your mortgage and then you know you're you're an over on owner of something that uh has appreciated well over over decades and now what you're seeing is kind of this renter economy where large scale institutional capital is going in and buying up neighborhoods at a time and turning everybody into a renter. And there's a bit of a, you know, there are some people that view that as kind of the death of the American dream, as we call it over here in terms of, you know, you buy your home and you, you know, it, it lifts you up. Um, so it's, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated issue, but I think, um, it plays well in the paper in terms of highlighting why why the industry is more complicated and it has downstream effects from a technology adoption perspective. And I think you do a really nice job of outlining the what you kind of classify the different categories of PropTech 2.0 um, and kind of the companies that sit within those. So you want to want to walk us through those a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um yeah, I, I think there's sort of there are very different types of prop tech out there, and everybody has a different image of of what prop tech is, or what real estate tech is, or or whatever they want to call it. And for my own purposes, I, I split split the thing into into three fundamental parts. One being the the physical 
property construction and operation process. You know, so from AutoCAD, you know, auto, you know, computer aided design through to uh, the technology that WeWork puts in its buildings to measure where people are sitting to 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 sensors that switch the lights off when you go out of the room. Everything to do with the construction design and physical operation of the building, I, I call smart building technology. And it's uh, fundamentally an engineering uh, subject. It's um, it's not my sweet spot by, by any means. And I, I see that market being dominated in the long run by heavy duty engineering companies like Siemens and Honeywell, or by Amazon and Google, you know, who have the have the money to be able to spend on 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 the home technology like Google Nest and and Alexa, and you know pushing those things to their ultimate conclusion to sort of automate your home. So this sort of idea about automated homes, smart workplaces, and um, and you know digital twins, building you know building BEMs, all of these things with the Internet of Things being coupled together creates this world of engineering and technology, which makes buildings more efficient and makes people able to run them in a more efficient way. So that's one area. The, the second area I've talked about, the, the other two areas are the areas I've talked about already. So the first one is real estate fintech. So, you know, as directly borrowing from fintech, which is tends to be 10 years ahead of real estate fintech, you know, the online banking, PayPal, even Amazon, and the way in which they've revolutionized the way in which we do business with money, um, you know, that led to peer-to-peer -peer lending in real estate, companies like Lend Invest in London, um, crowdfunding platforms of which there are many that have survived, many that have fallen, uh, usually disappointed by the volume on offer. You know, as I said before, just a hard slog trying to get people uh, comfortable with this and, and finding the volume of money that wants to go into this form. Um, so real estate, fintech, very interesting. You know, you could put blockchain into the supportive technology that's going to underpin real estate fintech um, transactions, you know, speeding up capital transactions of real estate, all of that in there, slow moving, probably over invested. I suppose you could throw in open door and I buyers, you could put all that in there as well. So definitely making a dent, um, but potentially over invested that, that area. And then the third area, the occupier market. Um, you know, what I think was stimulated through this idea of shared economy and Airbnb, but also Uber, Zipcar, those sorts of ideas, you know, the fact we we should be sharing our capital assets instead of wrapping everything up in in carbon intensive capital goods um, is a is a thoroughly good idea. So, I, you know, I I did make fun of the hippies mm -hmm. and the new ages, but but there is, they do have something and, and we will. We will increasingly find ways to share space and share capital goods, and um, you know the sharing of office spaces, the sharing of you know co-living spaces, and so on is certainly the way forward for much of town centres, city centres that we're going to see. Yeah, and I think what was interesting, you know, you highlighted kind of the history of computing at the top of the paper, where you talk about you know really computing computers were the first kind of wave 30s and 40s and it wasn't until the 70s 80s where you started to have different versions of what is now you know ultimately Microsoft Excel that was kind of the killer app that unleashed kind of the the usefulness of the underlying hardware to a much broader market and what i think with with real estate when we're watching it it's it's very different from a chronological standpoint because you have 
because of obviously cloud hosting and the prominence of SaaS and all of these things, you have a lot of these applications being built while uh, the underlying hardware is still uh, moving pretty slowly in terms of becoming smarter. Obviously, new developments are much small, smarter. And this is actually where I think a lot of developing countries actually um, have a little bit of an advantage where uh, much of the the real estate is new development versus retrofits in, in some of the, the more established world. But in terms of the, the physical component, you know, um, it's hard to kind of update the underlying physical infrastructure. We're seeing a lot of it in terms of, you know, IOT and all of these things becoming connected to the internet. But in terms of the, where you view us in that scale, in terms of the, the time relevance against kind of the computing industry, how, how early are we still in terms of kind of overall market adoption? If you, if you think about it from more of a global perspective. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're clearly early, but, um, we we can't afford to be early. So we, we have COP26 going on right now in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And everything that I think about is colored by the idea that, that we have to do something about carbon and global warming. So while I'm sure there are still people who are skeptical about this, you know, I think I think the property market, the property world in Europe has gone 99% full tilt behind this idea. And Greta Thunberg changed a lot of people's minds two or three years ago. And the COVID crisis, I think, had a, had a sort of a, a supportive effect in this sort of um, carbon agenda as well. And I think we all started to see a world which was struggling with a fundamental problem. And if, if we are right about global warming, then the fundamental problem is so much worse than COVID that, that I think we can start to see the need for action. So um, it seems to me that, that technology is going to be really, really important in avoiding the carbon disaster that that we appear to be heading for. And so the agenda will be about how do we retrofit existing buildings in the US, the UK, Germany, and so on? Um, How do we make those buildings more efficient? And in the UK, for example, we need to spend over £500 billion simply insulating the homes that we live in. Mm. You know, we, we, we have a huge simple but huge challenge of, of, of reinvestment in the existing stock that needs needs to be achieved through training technology and just sheer hard work and money um, but the more scary thing i think is that by some estimates 70 percent of the housing that will be built between now and 2050 will be built outside any building codes so it'll be built in emerging markets where there are no building codes so how do we make sure that the houses that are being built for poor people in africa conform to some sort of idea of energy efficiency so that they don't poison the planet and, and create the absolute, you know, the the the, the ironically worse result than than you would otherwise get. You know, we've got these we've got these places in Africa that are getting hotter all the time, which is forcing people to migrate out of Africa into Europe. Uh, and then and then we're building homes for people in Africa which might not be energy efficient. So you just sort of keep, you know, you're making the problem worse all the time. So that seems to me to be the big agenda right now. And it's the extent to which technology can be brought to bear in the property industry and the construction industry uh, on, on the physical operation and of, of, the, of the built environment in a way which makes it sustainable. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think that work has started with a, with a, with a bit of a vengeance. And I, and I hope that the momentum behind that pushes real estate into a, a speed of change which we've never seen before. And I think that's perfectly possible. 
Jen, I mean, you are starting to see, certainly in the U.S. with New York's, uh, you know, the city's local laws, I believe it's 93, 97, some real repercussions for uh, the commercial real estate industry to take action, which uh, obviously is a good thing. Um, and it will be interesting. I, I saw some quotes from, I believe, Xi Jinping talking about how the developed world should take on a majority of the burden in terms of kind of leading on carbon. And that's not necessarily wrong, but to your point, it can compound in problems if, you know, for the developing world, um, we're, we're not necessarily making it uh, economical to do the things where we're, you know, a lot of new, new builds and ultimately that are producing carbon. So yeah, um, it is something that it, it seems like there's action, but it still feels very early. I, I think it's one of the most interesting areas of kind of prop tech in terms of the the innovation you're you're seeing from a lot of entrepreneurs in terms of capturing carbon and uh, how they're thinking about repurposing and all of the stuff that hopefully entrepreneurs can solve this, which I think that is the the best path to success. Uh, but it it'll require funding and and an urgent patience, but you know, uh, yeah. And Xi Jinping should should understand that that while I can understand where he's coming from um, on the basis that we've we've probably contributed in the developed world to to more of the carbon carbon emission that than the developing world has, and we have that debt. The, the the other thing that we need to say is that the Western world is generally not building at the rate that the developing world is. And it's the embedded carbon that is in the in the in the materials being used in new construction is huge, and so that that point needs to be put back. You know, the the idea that we have a you know a completed environment. We yes, we've we've done our damage, but we do have a formed environment that we are now improving, mm-hmm. and that's that should be the mantra that we keep pushing back. That it's all about the improve improving the existing environment, making it more and more efficient, just constant improvement. In the way we operate our cities, that's what we're going to have to do, rather than building brand new ones. Yeah, um, switching gears a little bit in terms of kind of COVID and specifically the workplace. I'm interested to get your perspective on, um, you know, how how much do you think COVID has impacted essentially office in terms of long term? Do you view this as, um, you know, a, a short term? headwind and ultimately people come back to the workplace in a very similar manner that we did before COVID? Or do you think this is truly kind of a profound lasting impact and, um, you know, office office demand needs to be kind of refactored and, um, you know, it'll, we're all going to be working from our couches. Where do you, where do you kind of play in the spectrum of this? I've got a, I've got a problem here, I'm afraid, Chase, because, um, I've got my heart saying one thing and my head saying something else. I, I, had, a big, <laughs> I had a big revelation in 2016. So in 20, I used to go around the property market making quarterly predictions about the economy and the and the rents and the prices and all this stuff. And in 2016, um, I'm also a sports fan, by the way, and my my, my soccer team in the UK was um, was doing incredibly well in the English Premier League. And no team outside. Who's your Who's your team? I have to ask. Leicester Leicester City is my team. Okay, I'm a ta- I'm a Tottenham guy, so. Okay, bad luck. <laughs> I saw um, saw Leicester for the first time in 1961 when we lost at home to Arsenal one nil, and uh, we we'd never won the FA Cup and we'd never won the top division. And in 2016, we were top of the first division, 
And it seemed incredible that we could win this. But, you know, one of my predictions going around the quarterly meetings was, number one, Leicester City can't win the Premier League. That was fairly obvious to me. Number two, Britain will not vote for Brexit. That is that is not possible. And number three, Donald Trump will not win the US election. <laughs> and, and after that year, when Leicester City did win the Premier League and we voted for Brexit and Donald Trump won the election, I thought, this is it. This is the end for me. I'm not going to do any more forecasting. Christ, I'm out. <laughs> and um, and I feel a little bit the same about the future of the office. You know, my 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 head, uh, my head is, is definitely saying that it's not a good idea for people to work from home. It, that's number one. It's, uh, it's, it's highly overrated. It's a short-term reaction to not having enough freedom as an employee to, the, to think about working from home being a great thing. You know, you, the environment's not right. Sitting down is not healthy. You need, to, you need to move. You know, people need to get up in the morning, move to somewhere else, get some exercise, change their environment. You know, we're heading for a world of, of mental ill health, physical ill health, if people work from home too much. Just not a good idea. And if you're a if you are a working parent and looking after three kids and your partner grabs the laptop and the only room in the house where there's any space, you're in a terrible situation. So generally speaking, I'm very skeptical about this. On the other hand, um, COVID clearly did create a shift in behavior, and I suspect that shift is permanent, but it's not as deep as uh, as it appears to be. So, so basically, to answer your question, I think people will go back to the office three or four days a week. Is the basic yeah. the basic headline of this? Well, there, there are some. I, I, sorry, Chase, go on. Uh, I said I think you're you're right in what you're kind of pointing to, or these very especially. I think it's highlighted with the announcement of the metaverse and Meta from Facebook in terms of these opposing forces of. Um, those that are incentivized to keep us sitting and somewhat addicted and glued to screens while neglecting. And I think it's hard because what's often good for us is not always the most popular option. And your point about kind of getting up, switching environments and, uh, you know, going through the wretched morning commute, um, you know, uh, Kurt Lewin, the essentially founder of social psychology in the 1930s had Lewin's equation that said, you know, people are a behavior is a product of people in their environment. And uh, from an employer perspective, I think one of the things that a lot of employers are worried about, and they don't necessarily talk about publicly because of the, the great resignation and trying to kind of retain talent is when everyone is in their own environment, there's very little um, deliberate design on the environment in which you work and how you bring people together and how you learn about certain social norms and even just how you learn to do your job and all those things. Um, and it's, it's not, not popular. And then you have, uh, a lot of very powerful, particularly big tech companies seemingly trying to keep us not just home, but now in a whole new world, which frankly terrified me. Um, uh, a far leap from those hippies in the '60s out in a field, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I'm. It's going to be an interesting, I think, kind of battle and tug of war in terms of, you know, I think local community and uh, what was famously pointed out in the book in terms of uh, bowling alone uh, around 2000. Like being a part of local community and being around people is a really, really healthy. You said like mental health, physical health, all those things kind of compound off of each other. So I think it's important to try to get people back, but uh, it's not necessarily the most popular narrative right now.
No, I, I do. I do. So going straight to my heart now and not my head, I, I, I really like the idea of uh, third spaces. Mm. You know, so um, if, if people are going to be committed to staying closer to home and avoiding what you call the, the deadly, awful commute, <laughs> then I would greatly like to see community work hubs where people can go change their scene, move, meet different people, get stimulated. So even if they're going to the office only two days a week, you know, they've got two days a week when they can go somewhere else in the, um, you know, in the suburbs or out of town somewhere. Um, the economics of these things, though, just it, it isn't going to work far out of cities, you know. So the idea that you can go and live in Maine and be productive, be, you know, economically productive is just pie in the sky. You know, there, there will not, the economics will not support um, co-working spaces, third spaces in most of the cities in, in Maine. And um, therefore, you're going to be electing to work from home and not seeing anybody all day. And and that is great for the weekend, and, and I'd love to be there for the weekend. But I can I can understand working in New York, and I can understand living in the suburbs and having some third space, and um, and having a holiday home in Maine. Um, that would be great. Of course, you need to be able to live in three spaces. You know, yeah, that's the that's the dream, isn't it? It certainly is. Certainly is. Well, uh, Professor Baum, thanks so much for coming on. I know we've taken up a lot of your time here today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Enjoyed talking to you. Thanks a lot, Chase, and good luck with everything you do. For more information about how HQO can help you connect with your workforce and make smarter CapEx decisions and drive more NOI, visit us at hqo.com. This is Chase Garbarino. Thanks for tuning in. Let's go. Let's go.